invite you to take your copy of God's Word now and uh, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. And the words to which I would call your attention are found in, uh, we're going to split it, verses 24 to 30, and then in verses 37 to 43, uh, continuing to uh, work through uh, the parables of the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Hear now God's holy word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, And bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skipping to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Would you please be seated? Uh, Please join me in prayer. Our merciful and our heavenly Father, We thank you so much that you have given us life. Not only created life, life by which we, our hearts beat, our brains function, and we breathe in and out, O Lord, but you've given us abundant life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge in this moment that that life is given to us by your Spirit through the Word. And so we ask in this moment that you would cause your Word to to flourish in our own hearts that we would have a passion for the glory of Jesus Christ, a passion for the consecration of the entire earth. And, O oh, Father, help us to put sin to death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think probably one of the questions that we are faced with on a daily basis as we, as we process the events around us, especially thinking of the, the, the shooting that recently happened in, in Texas, One of the questions that I think we're faced with is, why is there evil? 
How, how, do we, how do we think about this being God's creation and yet there is evil in it? This is a question that my, every time I talk to my neighbor and he turns the conversation to the gospel, he says, I can't believe in that because there are children who starve and there are, there are acts of violence. I, I cannot believe that there is a God. And this parable it takes that question head on. It, it doesn't shy away from it at all. We acknowledge that this is one of the questions that always comes up. You think about the Psalms. If you read, I think especially as you, beginning with Psalm 30 and on, you get these questions from the psalmist, but here's one. Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. And the question, I think, is, well, why do, why do God's people have to pray prayers like this? This parable answers that question for you. I think that as we go through it, you're probably going to, maybe you're going to be like me, and you're going you're gonna to ask the question, why, for various ones of these, various things that we discuss. You're going to ask the question, why, and, and I think only one of those questions is going to be answered for you. Why, why is there wickedness in the world? This parable answers that question, but it answers another question for you. Or I think in another, another sense, it sets for you an expectation. And, and, and here is the major point of this parable. Christ's kingdom will prevail. Christ's kingdom will prevail. Now, Coming off the heels of the last parable, all of these parables of agriculture, Jesus is applying to, to an agricultural people. And we've come off the parable of the sower, the, the one who went and sowed his seed broadly. And, and you think about that parable, and, and, and um, only one soil out of four produced fruit. And what we took away from that is that, that God, in his sovereignty, through spiritual warfare, through uh, persecution, through temptation, he, he calls um, the, 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 the dead limbs, as it were, out of his garden. He removes them. Because there are many who sort of who cling on to the church, who make a false profession, and through spiritual warfare, through persecution and temptation, he removes that dead growth and enables his garden to bear much fruit. The second parable then we're moving from sort of a micro view of how God's kingdom works and, and the sowing of the seed and the preaching of the gospel. Now, Jesus backs us up and he says, now I want you to see, I want you to see things from the macro view. Let's take an airplane to 30,000 feet. I want to show you what's happening in God's world. In other words, I want you to see just for a second from God's perspective. That's what the wheat and the tares is doing for you and me giving us God's perspective on wickedness and on the future of, of the wicked. Where, where do they come from? Why are they here? And where are they going? But the one major point we take away from this is that Jesus' kingdom will prevail. Oh, that you, that, that you would live in that reality. That Christ's kingdom will prevail.
one of the authors I like to read, his sort of life, his life motto was pro-reggae for the king. In everything that you and I do, every aspect of our life, what we are doing in this world right now is pressing the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ into all of the created order. Pro-reggae. That is what we live for. We remember that Jesus is teaching us the, the first mark of a kingdom citizen is an unquenchable desire for and pursuit of the truth. A kingdom citizen wants to understand God's world from God's perspective, and here Christ gives it to you. The 30,000 foot view, taking the entirety of redemptive history from creation to consummation, Jesus teaches us in three separate epochs of history. So the first thing that we're going to see is the creation conundrum. What, what happened at creation? And then the second thing that Jesus shows us is, is he takes all of redemptive history from creation to consummation, and he says, here's the present reality. And then in the last part of it, we see the final epoch, the, the destination of all men. It's almost like Psalm chapter 1. We see it in this parable. So let's, let's begin then, first of all, by thinking about the creation conundrum. Go back with me to verses 24 to 28. Jesus here, like he's setting a table, he puts another parable before them. Now, why would he do this? Remember, because the faithful disciple does what? He's going to press in. Jesus is giving him the truth in, in this kernel, in, in this seed, and the disciples will press in. The true disciple will want to know what it means, and they do. In verse 24, he puts another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to or likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And you can see that, that the servants of the house now are sort of playing the part that you and I might play. They are asking the question that is burning on our minds. What happened I go back and I read the creation account. I look at Genesis chapter 1 and I see that there on seven, di seven different occasions God looked at his creation and he said, it is good. But now I back up and I evaluate my own created reality, the world that I live in, and I see that there are broken relationships. I see that men, they give a day's labor and they don't earn a day's wage. And some don't give a day's labor and they earn a day's wage. And so we see all of this brokenness, all of these broken relationships, men who allow bitterness to, to build up in their hearts without dealing with it. And where does all of this come from? Well, the first thing that the Creator would say to you, Christ, He says to you, it doesn't originate in the goodness of God. The Son of Man sowed His creation with good seed. God's creation as He made it was totally morally good. 
and everything that God made functioned exactly how he intended it to function. And so so we think about that then, and, and what that teaches me is that I should never, ever, ever lay the blame for sin at God's feet. Think about James chapter 1. He says there, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, what he is telling you is that that sinful desire originates in your heart. God, God never tempts you. He never tries to cause you to fall away. Now he does ordain tests for you. But his motivation is always the good of his people. Evil does not proceed from God. Well, where does it come from? What has corrupted the creation? Jesus teaches us. Look what happened in verse 25. But while his men or the servants of the house were sleeping, perhaps rather than guarding, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Satan in his work, corrupted the creation. And we think in that very moment where Adam and Eve were in the garden, you think of that moment where he came in the form of a serpent and tempted her to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she did. And in that moment, in that moment, the seeds of evil were sown into the creation So that when God cursed the creation on account of Eve and Adam's sin, the seeds of evil spread everywhere. It spread everywhere. The enemy of Christ, or as we learn in verse 39, the devil himself, his work was to corrupt God's good work. So... A major point to take away from the very beginning here is is notice that in this parable there there is no passage of time. It doesn't talk about how men uh, are are born into the kingdom of the devil and they're transferred into the kingdom of God. It doesn't talk about the, the original corruption of man's heart. None of that is explained to us. What it says to you, emphasizing the sovereignty of God, is that he conceives of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil in their fullness from all eternity. He knows them all. In God's mind, they are eternally distinct. The sons of God and the sons of the devil are eternally distinct in the mind of God. God sees the end from the beginning. And and this is the doctrine of election. The whole number of the redeemed and the whole number of the reprobate are known to God from all eternity. Their number is determined and their fate is sealed. You see, Jesus is showing you how God perceives all of this. And so for you and me, here's a practical application. We say this over and over and over because it needs to be said over and over and over. In this world, there are two types of people. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And for you and me to place, to make strong distinctions between men on any other basis than that is not to live according to the kingdom of God. 
to discriminate on bases other than that is not to perceive truly the kingdom of God. But I think there's, if you're listening to this, maybe there's one question. Why? Did, did, was God powerless here? Was, was the sowing of, of the seed, the corrupt seed in God's garden, was that, was God powerless to prevent that? And I think Jesus gives us hints at the answer. Notice that when the servants in verse 27, they came and asked him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? In other words, did, you, you, went, you went down to, this, to the feeding seed, right? You, you got the seed. Did, was, was it bad seed? Did you get a bad product? Lord says, no, this is my enemy. Notice that immediately he knew. Immediately he knew. There was no question for him. And so he, he is showing us that God knows his created order differently than the angels. He knew what had happened. And it teaches us that the rebellion Satan sowed into the world, listen, was an aspect of God's plan, not contrary to it. Why would God make this an aspect of his plan? Well, the parable doesn't answer that for us, does it? I think there is an answer, and we're going to come to it in just a second. But at this point, we may only conclude, listen, that it was for God's good purposes that he permitted the devil to sow the corrupt seeds in his good creation. And so an emphasis here is on the sovereignty of God. He knows who are his and he sees and he determines their fate. The second thing that we see is a a second epoch of of redemptive history. We've looked at the creation conundrum and we see what has happened that that the good creation has been corrupted by the devil's work (coughs) in and through men. And so the next epoch that uh, the parable covers is from the fall to the judgment. Now, As we come to this part, one of the things that you and I talk about a lot, and we debate a lot, is what do we need to do to restrain evil? You think about the shooting in Texas, and the immediate response on social media and in the the newspapers is, what do we do? What What have we done wrong? How did we permit this to happen, and how do we keep it from happening again? We're having this debate, even in our own community, aren't we? What, what methods do we use if we build a facility to house juvenile delinquents? What Do we incarcerate them all? How long do we put them away? In other words, what are we going to do to solve for the problem of evil? How do we eradicate that? This is why we thought so much about who we elected to the, to, the, um, to the presidency and the appointment of Supreme Court justices because we want to see wickedness and evil eradicated from our land. We want that. We pray for it. Pastor Danny prayed for it just this morning, and it's a good prayer because we pray, Lord, cause your name to be hallowed in all the earth. How does this parable teach us to anticipate wickedness in the world? What expectation does it set for us? 
Begin reading with me in verse 29. Let's pick up at verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this, a hostile man. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go fix it? Do you want us to go gather up that bad seed and get rid of it? But he said, the son of man said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 30 teaches us that in the kingdom of Christ, the wicked and the righteous will grow together. Why is this important? Well, because what Jesus is teaching us in this parable is that the wicked remain only because he permits them to remain. Do do you know that there is a sense in which God in his sovereignty preserves the wicked? Do Do you take that away from this passage of Scripture? The only reason that wicked men remain in the world is because God permits them to remain. That's what what Jesus is saying in verse 29. Don't take them out. Don't go and pluck them up. Leave them. Let them grow together. Notice that Jesus forbids their removal. Why? Why does Jesus forbid the removal of the wicked? Is it for the good of the wicked? It is for the good of the righteous. Do you know that because you are in the world, remember remember that Jesus calls you to be salt, a preserving factor in the world. Do you know that because there are sons of God in the kingdom, God forbears his judgment against the wicked? Did you know that? He shows mercy to the wicked on account of the righteous. Think back with me. There's a story in the book of Genesis, Genesis 14 or 19, um, where God has come to Abraham. And he says, shall I reveal my plan to Abraham? He says, well, I, I will. And so he told Abraham, I am going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember how Abraham responded in that moment? What did he do? Well, he knew that his nephew Lot was living in the city of Sodom. And so he began to pray. And he said, Lord, what if if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Are you going to annihilate it? You remember what God said? No. Even if there are 50 righteous men in that city, I I won't annihilate it. And Abraham said, um, what about 45 righteous people. And God said, no, I won't eliminate it. And eventually he gets there, what if there are 10? And God said to him, Abraham, if there are 10 people, I won't annihilate the city. I won't judge it. And so in the same way, because there are righteous men in the world whom God loves, he preserves the wicked for a time. But we always remember, in whose kingdom are they dwelling Turn over with me to verse 41 and look what Jesus says there. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather what? Out of His kingdom. 
all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers. What Jesus is teaching us in this moment is that as much as you and I might try by physical means to eliminate evil in this world, God has ordained it to persist. And evil will persist as long as it serves God's good pleasure. Now, now, another thing I think to notice that's important is the parable doesn't comment on the proportion. Did you notice that? It doesn't say that it's going to be 50-50 or 70-30. It doesn't teach us. In fact, if we take a whole view of the way that Christ's kingdom is to grow in the earth, do you know what our expectation should be? That through time, the, the proportion of the wicked will diminish with reference to the proportion of the righteous. This establishes for us then a Christian expectation. Going back, remember how the psalmist prayed, Lord, preserve me from my enemies, protect me from my persecutors, help me, help me, help me. Do you pray that? We do, don't we? But understanding that God for a time has ordained the preservation of the wicked with the righteous, it helps us to have a proper expectation for ourselves. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus teaches us that while we are in this world living for his glory, the sons of the devil will persecute the sons of righteousness. Are you better than your master? Or as we read in 1 John 3, We know that we have passed, or do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But we just never forget, even though in this passage Jesus teaches us to expect wickedness, to expect that there will be times where violence perhaps seems to prevail on the earth because God permits it. We must never forget that the wicked are squatting on God's land. Isn't this the picture of, of the church under the old covenant? You think about it. When, when, God, when God called Abram, he said, I'm going to give you a land, didn't he? And then he brings them out in the Exodus, maybe some two million people, we, we don't know exactly, and he leads them through the wilderness. And what does he say? I'm taking you to a land, and what are they going to do? What, what's he going to do? I'm going to drive them out from before you. It, it's my land. They are living on my land, and I am giving it to you, my people. I'm giving it to you. But the picture we have there is that God wouldn't drive them out all at once. 
God says to him in Deuteronomy 9.1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven. But he had said to them in Exodus 23.29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. So if you take this as a picture of God giving the earth to his people, we understand it is a time-taking task by God's ordination. And yet finally, we see as we look to the final epoch of history, the consummation of the kingdom The fate of both the wicked and the righteous is certain. The fate of both the wicked and the righteous is certain. So just remember, we've gone from the creation conundrum. Where has this wickedness and this evil come from? Why is it here? And then the second epoch of history from the fall all the way to the consummation of the kingdom. What do we expect? Well, to some degree, the wicked will persist. It will be with you. Don't be shocked then when you're persecuted or when there's news of violence and war. But then finally, and I think this is the ultimate emphasis of this parable, we see the consummation of the kingdom. Notice with me verse 43. (coughs) Let's actually pick up and read it, verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And now this part. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, and the kingdom of their Father, He who has ears Let him hear. There are two aspects of the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Two aspects. First, the judgment of the wicked. The judgment of the wicked. Notice, if if we were to sort of count all the words and say the proportion of words dedicated to, to each aspect of this parable, the bulk of it falls on Jesus explaining the judgment of the wicked. In fact, The disciples, notice what they call it when they come and ask him about it in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Specifically, you see, they're they're asking him to explain who these weeds are and and what they're doing there and what's going to happen to them. So that's what Jesus proceeds to explain. And if we take this, then, as showing us the next event in the history of redemption, what is it? Verse 41. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, what Jesus teaches us is the next thing that we anticipate is that he, as a king and captain, will come forth and send his holy angels to gather out of his kingdom all lawbreakers and all causes of sin. He is, in his own time, going to send the reapers forth. 
to cleanse his kingdom of all lawlessness and all wicked. They will be separated. The wicked will be judged. And the wicked will be cast into the fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the certainty. You see then, we we see in the parable, where did they come from? Sown by the devil. What what will be their presence in Christ's kingdom now? Well, they they will continue for a time to grow and to persist. But in the last day, in God's time, he will send forth his angels to remove them, to purge them, to separate them, to judge them. But he also shows us the glorification of the righteous. Verse 43 is a very interesting verse. Notice what Jesus says there. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's almost as though Jesus um, were thinking back to the, the two aspects of believing life. You are salt as a preserving factor and you are light. The preserving factor in the sense that because you are in the world, God exercises mercy toward the wicked and in a sense preserves them for the day of judgment. But you are also the light of the world. Jesus teaches us that the righteous remain and will shine as the sun. What does that mean exactly? Don't you wonder? Well, I think there's a possibility that it is literal. Remember that when we're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to get to the transfiguration of Christ. You remember what happens in that moment? The, James and Peter and John are given this vision of Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father. And you remember the description of Christ in that moment. They see Him in His exalted glory. His body shines like the sun. In fact, it outshines the sun. And when we think about the future of the believer, think about some of the things that the Scriptures tell us. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <laughs> and let's begin reading in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is your body, is perishable. What is raised, that is your body, is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now what this is teaching us is that the way that Christ will raise your body from the ground when you are glorified in that day is going to be as distinct in glory as an earthly flesh is from a heavenly flesh. Consider 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears in His glory, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. There is, I think, a very real possibility that the glorified body of men and women in heaven will shine with the brightness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps it will be a reflected glory. Remember, in that place, according to Revelation chapter 22, there is no need for a sun because the glory of Christ fills it and the glory of the exalted Christ reflected off of his people forever and forever and forever. What a picture. And you will inherit his kingdom. You will shine like him and you will reign with him. Him. What is the point of this parable? That Jesus Christ's kingdom will prevail. He is preserving the wicked for a period of time to serve his purposes. And that time will come to an end. When the wicked will be cast into eternal torment and the righteous with Christ will shine and reign. Remember, at God's decree, there is coming a point when all things in redemptive history will end time will end and the next major event on our horizon is the moment that Christ will send forth his angels to remove the wicked out of his kingdom in that day those who belong to him will will be brilliantly changed into Christ's glorious likeness and will dwell forever with him in his kingdom and so here's here's a takeaway Do not be discouraged. Resist the temptation to become discouraged. We know the end of the story. You know the end of the story. You know which kingdom prevails. You know who has the power. You know who sits on the throne of God. And having this knowledge, you and I can put forth maximum effort. Imagine if you were riding in the cavalry and you knew that you were riding towards certain victory. How much harder would you fight? Are you doing that now? Are you living in such a way that you think that you're pressing the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ into every aspect of life? Because He owns it. We shape our lives by this truth. We do not give up knowing that His righteous kingdom will prevail. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, merciful Father, We praise you 
We praise you as the one who from all eternity has set all of this in order. And we thank you, Father, that by your mercy you've caused us to know you. But we know by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and minds that we belong to you through the Lord Jesus Christ by the forgiveness of sins. And we also know because of your work within us that we don't deserve to be sons of the kingdom. It's, it's not because of desert. You have made us so only for the glory of Jesus Christ and because of his great power. Father, we ask now that you would help us to live pro reggae every day for the king. That we would acknowledge his power over us and over his enemies. And would you strengthen us, O oh Father, to, to live in every, every aspect of life in total submission to Christ the King. We pray in his name. Amen.